Hi everybody, thanks for joining us today. Back in the 90s, well-known worship leader Brian Dirksen did a musical called The Father's Heart. The music was incredible and it came out of a teaching that was going on at the time on the subject of the Father's heart and God's love for us. I know for a lot of people at the time, including me, it was life-changing as we experienced and understood God's love in a deeper way. I mention all of that to say that I heard Brian speak about putting the musical together and the way in which the teaching impacted him at a small gathering a couple months ago. At the time, I had the thought that I'd like to speak to my friend Matt Atkins about the subject because he's been teaching on it for probably 30 years to people all over the world. Matt is a good friend, he's a pastor, and a financial planner. For me, this interview was another great reminder to rest and find my identity in God's love. I don't know about you, but I can never be reminded about this enough. I hope you enjoy and appreciate our conversation about the Father Heart of God with Matt Atkins. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Fuel Radio. Welcome, Matt. Good morning, Rod. How are you doing? Good. <laughs> We've been experiencing all kinds of issues, mostly because uh, my, of my Mr. Magooishness. <laughs> <laughs> and if you know that reference, then you're dating yourself. Yeah. <laughs> Good. Well, thank you for your, your patience. We don't need to say this necessarily, but this is kind of our third, third attempt now. <laughs> yeah. We'll get it figured out. Yeah. So we're talking about the father's heart. And just to give some context, um, I heard someone talk about this recently in the little church gathering that I go to talk about the father's heart. And I know that Matt's been teaching this for a long time and uh, I wanted to explore it some more. It kind of led me to have a desire to explore it some more. So let's lay the foundation by uh, just giving a definition. So if you sort of give us a working definition, what is the father's heart? Yeah, the Father's heart is really a reference to kind of the, the overarching picture we see of God throughout the Bible. So we could pick up a lot of different themes. Obviously, we could pick up sovereign God. We could pick up the holy God. But one of the themes that comes throughout uh, from literally Genesis all the way through to Revelation is God as Father. God as Father of the nation of Israel. Uh, the prophets talk about God as Father. The psalmist talks about God as Father. The, the wisdom writers talk about the, you know, Abraham's father. And, and so you see this overarching theme. And then certainly in the incarnation of Jesus, you find, again, that major theme relationship, whether it's at his baptism or the Mount of Transfiguration, we see these encounters that Jesus has with God as his father. And eventually the church began to even define the Godhead as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So it doesn't really matter where you go in the Bible, uh, one of the themes, and there's a lot of reasons for that. I mean, obviously, the, the father theme in, in Judaism is, uh, has to do with you know, where blessing comes from. It has to do with where identity comes from. It has to do with, with uh, uh, passing on legacy. And on and on the, the, the list goes in terms of why they would understand and view Yahweh as father. And so... Father heart of God is really trying to capture that overarching theme and saying, does it, is that the major way that you view God and experience God in your life? What, what was some of your first encounters with it? Like how long, when did you first uh, yeah. Yeah, hear well, the teaching on the Father heart of God and, and what was it like for you? 
Yeah, interestingly, Rod, I would say I grew up with a view of God being raised in a Christian home, hearing a lot about the love of God, but my own experience was that God was pretty disappointed with me. And because truth be told, I was just a screw up and, and I, I, uh, I struggled to obey like most people do. And, and as a result, I, I viewed God through this paradigm that, that he was kind of disgusted with me and disgusted with my behavior. And, you know, that if, if at any moment in time I were to say, well, what, what is God thinking about me? I, I probably would have said in those earlier years, he's probably thinking, why are you still struggling so bad? And so when you carry that into your life and as, as a pastor into my ministry life, you know, the, the natural outcome of, is it, of it is that, you know, I lived with a lot of performance orientation. And so trying to, to please God and trying to please other people and do good in ministry and, and live up to people's expectations and on and on the list went. And even though I received teaching on the Father Heart of God when I was relatively young, um, it really had very little impact on me back even when I was 18. I understood it intellectually, but but certainly nowhere in my kind of the depths of my being. And so it wasn't until probably close to 10 years later that I I began to experience God in the places in my life that I was convinced God was really disgusted with me about and, and started to encounter God's love in those places. And, and as I began to encounter God's love in the darker, uglier, more sinful places of my life, uh, I began to realize, you know, God's known this all along. And, you know, uh, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It wasn't after I got cleaned up. That, that God came to demonstrate his love. And so then allowing God's love to permeate even those places in my life that were, uh, in my mind, disappointing and recognizing, but he's always known them. He's always known they were there. He's kind of like Adam and Eve, you know, walks through the garden. It's not like God didn't know where Adam and Eve were. And yet he says, where are you? And uh, I think he asks that question of us all the time. Where are you? And, and it's because we don't know. And we don't experience God's presence and love in those times and those places of our lives. Wow, that's pretty profound. I feel like that's the, like a mic drop moment. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think if that's all... We can just all, end I, now. <laughs> yeah, we can end now. I hope that, uh, yeah, I hope that people heard that. That's. I, I just know that so many people, including myself, live with kind of that view it's 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 could sort of be running around running in the background you know that evangelical guilt and worm theology and feeling like god is disappointed with us consequently i think we feel like everybody's sort of disappointed with us and it creates uh you know people are i should just speak for myself but wanting to perform and feeling like never measuring up and it's it's quite a profound shift, isn't it? And I, I, I think as I get older and mature as a Christian too, I see that a big part of maturity is realizing that God, I know it's such a cliche, but that God accepts us just as we are. And you, you, I'm sure you've seen it over and over again as you've been teaching this. Yeah, one of the exercises that I do kind of early on in, in speaking on this subject is I do what I call a, a, a sense dive. And so I just ask the people, 
to put everything down, just grab a piece of paper, and I want them to dive into their senses, okay? So most of us function at a pretty cognitive level most of the time. And so when I think about my senses, I'm thinking about what do I see, what do I hear, what do I smell, what do I taste, what do I touch? And then the other one kind of is, is that kinesthetic, you know, which is that, that awareness of energy or somebody around us. And, and we all have that experience where we feel like somebody's looking at us. That, that has to do with the kinesthetic part of our, our being. And, and so I, I just ask them, okay, I'm going to say a word. And all I want you to do is dive into your senses and write down what you have. And I just say the word father and, and ask them to, to put down on paper, you know, what is it? You know, you, you hear these, uh, you know, tobacco, old spice, uh, coffee in the morning, uh, bacon on the weekends, um, lawn mowing, um, anger, uh, disappointment, uh, raging, alcohol. I mean, literally the list goes on and on. And for some people, they start to get in touch with their own complexity of experience in their lifetime. And if we, you know, <laughs> that impacts every time we hear the word father, it doesn't matter where it comes from the pulpit or comes out of the Bible, that impacts what we think and what we feel and what we experience when we hear the word father, even if it's God. We talked about this last time that I think people really, uh, it seems today even that people struggle to use, what word are they going to use for God? <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, uh, and so here you are using the word father and, and uh, you probably, you, you just spoke about it there, but maybe, maybe you could speak to that. Like, what are some of the issues in using the word father? I know that when I first heard this teaching, it was with a fellow by the name of Ed Piorek, and it was a really powerful conference. He came and taught at the church that I was at, or you were, you were there too, I think. A lot, of, a lot of people's issues had to do with their father images, and then they struggled to use that word for God. So maybe you could just address that for us. Yeah, which I mean, I, I completely understand and I'm empathetic towards because it does carry such weight. And for some people, you know, you think about those who maybe never met their biological father or their father figure in this world was extremely destructive in their lives uh, to then try to relate to God through that lens is just almost impossible. Um, the, the reason, you know, down through the ages in terms of Judaism, Christianity, that God has been viewed that way is because of the, the understanding of, of legacy, of passing on, you know, identity, who God is, characteristics, all those elements. And all those elements are true even in our earthly fathers. I mean, you know, it's amazing when people who've been separated from their earthly father meet them after many, many years to find out they carry in their DNA all these characteristics that are similar. And so it's, it's coming to a place of healing with regards to our earthly father experience is really part and parcel with, with understanding and experiencing a revelation of God's love as father for us. And I do believe that it, it has to do with how we see ourselves, who, what is our identity? There are many, many things that mother gives us. And, but really identity down through the ages has come through father. And though I'm, I'm, you know, 
careful with that because it, in some ways that's a generalization. Uh, there are so many statistics. I mean, people can go look up countless, and they're not Christian-based statistics in terms of the effects of fatherlessness on a society, on a people group, and, and uh, the number of people that are incarcerated who have a negative father experience. I mean, you just see the ramifications of it over and over and over again in, in the world that we live in. So though it's difficult, I, and I've, I try to be sensitive to it, I've found myself even more convinced after 30 years of teaching this, that it's as necessary today as it's ever been. So are you saying it kind of goes part and parcel, like hand in hand? Like if you sort of have, for a lack of a better term, if you have a father wound <laughs> and you're, you're willing to work through that, it, it can also correlate to your view of God and, and seeing God as father. Like they kind of, it, it all kind of works together. It can all work together. Yeah. I mean, you think about a person who's been abandoned, how, how hard is it for them to trust and, and therefore trust God? You know, is God going to be there in my moment of need? Or is God going to lead me on the side of the street? And, you know, is God going to, to rescue me? Is God going to protect me? All those core images and things that become the centerpiece of faith, those are very challenging to somebody who's carrying around a father one. Or maybe it takes on the form of, of a real performance orientation, you know, which in my own journey was part of the, the struggle, you know, in terms of viewing how I viewed God. And so, you know, is God going to be pleased with me even though I'm struggling? And because maybe, you know, earthly father was, was uh, demanding or a disciplinarian or, you know, seemed frustrated with us all the time. All those things carry into how I relate to God, not just think about God. Because some people can have lots of thoughts about God. They've been told what they need to believe and what they need to think, and, and they do that. However, that's not that, the Greek word is gnosko, that, that inner knowledge that goes beyond just thinking to experiential thinking and experiential knowledge, actually owning something, having it play out in your life. And, and so I can have all the right thoughts about God, but have no experience of a God who loves me in the totality of my being. How does this teaching fit in with the, you know, the, um, the teaching on the Trinity? Uh, Richard Rohr, one of my favorite authors, has been, he sends out a daily email and has actually been talking about the Trinity lately. And uh, so how does, it, how does the Father part relate to the Father, Son, and, and Holy Spirit? You know, when we're, we're pulling just one part of the Trinity out, I'm just wondering if you could sort of address that for us. Yeah, you know, you're probably putting me in a place where I can get in a lot of trouble, Rod. But um, <laughs> it's, well, it's such a difficult. I want to let you off the hook because it's. I, I almost don't even try to even think about the Trinity necessarily, <laughs> um, because yeah. it's so. It can be so complex, and the explanations of it are are really hard. And I don't want to get you in trouble, but no, um, no, you're you're not going to. I, it's actually okay. something that's very very important to me because the evangelical world would consider religious organizations that don't embrace the Trinity as being at best pseudo-Christian and at worst probably cultish. And it, it is cornerstone to much of what we believe is Orthodox Christianity. And yet, practically, uh, most people have no working relationship with the Trinity. They have no 
understanding of why is it significant? And, and a, you know, truth be told is most of us are tri-theists at best. And uh, so we, we have these, this belief practically in the Trinity, but, but really, you know, sorry, theologically as a Trinity, but practically it becomes that we really worship three different gods, Father, Son, and Spirit. Uh, in terms of why I believe it's so important is it's relational. Okay, the, the picture of the Trinity is a picture of relationship, of community. It's of a God who invites us into something that is um, identical to his own relationship within the Godhead. So instead of being invited into being told we have to behave, we have to live in community, uh, you know, confess to one another. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. The whole concept of koinonia, of oneness, John 17, all of that could easily in some context be seen as God demands of us something that God won't do. But in the Godhead of Christianity, God is doing it. God is dwelling in unity. God is relating as father, son to father, and I would say daughter to father also. So it's a very relational picture that in my mind invites us into intimacy. I mean, that's the whole nature of Jesus' prayer in John 17. It's not just um, an invitation for us to be one and a prayer that we as Christ followers would be one, but it's that we would also experience that oneness in God that he experiences. That's pretty profound. So I, I think the Trinity becomes very practical in that God is, is living out the very values of Christ, even within himself. Yeah. And <laughs> this is why I always feel like you're so brilliant because <laughs> it's, it's kind of exactly the point that Richard Rohr and other theologians that he's had, he's quoted this week and, and had, teach on this he made the the exact same points that you're making is that it's about relationship and community and um and that it's so foundational as well one of the things he he mentioned and i've had experience with this in spiritual direction is there's an icon called the hospitality yeah and uh it's made by the iconographer um andre rublev and it just shows sort of the the mutual the there's sort of mutuality in the in the in the picture, you know, hmm. they're all kind of looking at each other and deferring to one another. And um, when when my spiritual director assigned that uh, to me, I actually kind of had an experience with it that I won't go into, but it was very profound and um, it was an experience of rest and and relationship, just like you've been you've been talking about. So it wasn't so theological as much as it actually. I actually sort of had an experience with it. I know that sounds kind of woo-woo, but uh, that's... <laughs> Praise that's God, yeah. <laughs> I, it's in, you know, some people get all ethereal in talking about this subject and kind of like, well, you're telling me I need to feel God and so on and so forth. And of course, I want the emotions to be involved in my relationship with God. I think God wants that too. Um, but, you know, it was Jesus who said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So really the revelation of the father is found in the son. And it's very difficult for me to try to, you know, move from just a theological understanding of God, the father into an experiential one, if I don't have a practical living example. And so 
when I think about how I begin to understand who God the Father is, I look at the Son. And it's really in that relationship that the Father and the Son have while Jesus is on earth that we begin to see the nature of the relationship God wants with us. And, and so, you know, at his baptism, you have to ask the question, why, is it, why did God choose to say, you are my dearly loved son in whom I am well pleased? Or as I like to say it, you are my dearly loved child and I am so proud of you. Why did he choose to say that? Like, why didn't God end the debate about who the Messiah was in that moment and say, hey, everybody, this is the Messiah? That would have solved a couple thousand years of problems. And, but he chose not to say that. He chose to say, you're my dearly loved son. And I think we have to ask the question, why? Why did God say that? And I think it's because Jesus needed it. Hmm. I think it's because Jesus, the man, needed to hear his father say, son, I've got your back. I'm proud of you. I love you. Don't ever doubt it. He hadn't done a single ministry thing at that point in time. It kind of goes back to your earlier point about identity too, right? Like the father gives identity. I see some identity giving in that moment as well. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. And then he reiterates it on the Mount of Transfiguration. And, you know, I think those two very profound, overt moments that we see Jesus and his father, they both carry the same message. And, And that's the message you know, that's the message I want to carry, but it's also the message I think is so critical to maturing. You know, when, when John writes in First John 2 that he says, I write to you fathers because you've known him as from the beginning. I'm writing to you young men because you're strong and the word of God lives in you. I write to you children because your sins are forgiven on account of his name. Then he kind of repeats himself. You know, I write to you fathers because you know, known him as from the beginning. I write to you young men because you're strong. And the word of God lives in you. You've overcome the evil one. And I write to you children because you've known the father. And, and so, you know, when, you, when I think of kind of a process of maturity, I think a lot of us try to move on to being strong and having God's word live in us and overcoming the enemy. But we really haven't dealt with, do you know your sins are forgiven? Are you still walking in shame? Or are you walking in freedom? Do you know the Father intimately, personally? Do you understand who God is and how much he loves you at the depth of who you are? In every deep, dark, ugly part of your life, God loves you. And then I can actually grow in strength. I can actually become uh, an overcomer, if you will. I can actually get to know God in the breadth, the eternality of who he is. But uh, to try to get there without experiencing, and that word gnosko is the word know. You've known the Father experientially in your being. It has so many profound, this teaching has so many profound uh, impacts and, and uh, yeah, and scope. Um, for you, it seems like it's almost like the Father's heart teaching is like a personal calling. <laughs> You've been teaching it for so long, and can you just tell us a little bit more about that? Like, why is it so personal for you? Yeah, I actually think it the the calling predates the teaching. You know, I we tend to use vocation and occupation kind of synonymously, but vocation has to do with uh, it comes from the Latin word vocatio. It has to do with calling. And, and I would describe my calling in this life to be a father. And if my kids know and my wife knows, uh, 
that on my tombstone, I wanted to say he was a father, father in the faith, a father to his children, and a father to the fatherless. So when my day is done, that is, is how I want to be remembered. What I do as an occupation is really something that, you know, falls underneath that vocation. So pastoring is one way I get to grow as a father. Teaching in other settings, conferencing and stuff, is another way I get to grow and express my calling as a father. Being a financial advisor in business is another way that I get to express my calling as a father. And, and so all those things flow out of the overarching sense that if, if I'm to become like Christ, and in becoming like Christ, he shows me who the father is, then ultimately I'm also becoming like the father. And so I don't, it doesn't matter to me if you're female out there listening to this and you say, I want to become like mother God. Wonderful. Because God is both father and mother. And, and so, and we sometimes in evangelical world downplay that aspect, but it is such a profound revelation of God to recognize that God is maternal as well as paternal. And so, um, you know, for me as a man, I re- I, I want to become like, father God, but for a woman, she might want to become like mother God. Wonderful. Even you're making me think of the story of the prodigal son and even the father in that story in a way is a bit maternal. He, he doesn't, he doesn't take the action of a, of a harsh father. You know, he, he embraces the, or at least in the, some of the paintings that we see, he embraces the, the, pro, the prodigal son when he, when he returns home, you know? Well, and I think even in the way the story, Jesus tells the story of him running and kissing his son, I, I definitely see that mother running out to welcome the returning child. And, you know, that's to me is, you know, unfortunately it's one of the worst names named stories in the Bible. It's, it, really very little to do with the prodigal son and everything to do with the loving father. So why it wasn't named that, I don't know. I mean, Jesus tells three stories in a row in response to the accusation that he eats with sinners. And so he tells the story of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost sons. And that's not just son, it's sons, older and younger son. And and, uh, sometimes I think, you know, honestly, Rod, when I was growing up, you know, my mom asked me one time, what did we do that caused you to rebel? And I looked at her and said, I never rebelled. And, and, and though my actions were rebellious, my heart was not doing something against my parents. I wasn't rebelling against God or rebelling against them. In, in most ways, I was just like the lost sheep. I just had my head down, was eating grass. And the next thing I know, I found myself or in my case back then, smoking grass. But anyway, um, <laughs> uh, you know, I had my head down and I'd wandered off away from the crowd and I was lost. And, uh, you know, I, I view that through the lens of my insecurity and my in, inability to, to go against the crowd around me. And, and I just followed and ate grass and found myself off in a field really, really vulnerable. And so Jesus in that situation tells the story of the shepherd who goes and, and catches, finds the lost sheep, brings them back and says, come celebrate. You don't see any accusation against the sheep in that story. 
and the lost coin. So you know how many people in our world are, they, they got knocked off the shelf and they're gathering dust underneath the bed of no volition of their own. And the kind of evangelical mantra that they need to repent just does not resonate with them because they, what did they do to cause their parents to divorce and, and abuse them and stick them into a foster system and, you know, or be killed early, die young, be alcoholic. What did the child do to create that scenario? They just found themselves like a little lost coin. And Jesus tells the story of why he eats with sinners that he goes and the, the woman, and I love the fact that the woman sweeps the house. And when she finds the coin, she celebrates and calls all her neighbors to celebrate. And then you have the story of the sons, one who of their own volition goes away and rebels, and one who stays and is the obedient son, but still won't enter the father's house, still will not embrace the father's love. And at the end of the story, it's the interaction with that son that for many of us becomes more profound because, you know, he says he's angry and jealous. And the father says to him, everything is yours. Like all those animals out there, they're yours. You can throw a party any day you want. Why have you not done it? And I find so many Christians who think that, you know, they literally obey all the rules of the house, but they never really open the fridge and just eat the food that God's provided. <laughs> yeah. Would, so. would you say your mom uh, saying, you know, why did you rebel? That's kind of putting a label and a, an identity on you, right? And you're, you're, are you kind of saying just the opposite? Is that you were, you did some rebellious things because you were sort of lost in a way. Um, yeah. I mean, it was well-deserved. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. <laughs> yeah. So it was well-deserved. And just like it is in my adult life, it's well-deserved if people, you know, you know, if you, if you want to label it as rebellious and, but more often than not in my own life and I see in other people's lives, it's, it doesn't come out of rebellion. It comes out of brokenness. It comes out of longing and um, desire to, uh, meet some need. And yeah, is it done in an unhealthy way and a sinful way? Oftentimes, of course it is. But the, the heart is not, you know, gonna, I'm going to teach my parents a lesson. I'm going to rebel against all their rules. The heart is trying to find out who I am and just unfortunately doing things that are destructive oftentimes in that attempt to kind of satisfy those longings of our heart that haven't been satisfied which I believe are satisfied, by the way, in the encounter of God's love. <laughs> yeah, good. That's where I wanted to go next. Like, would you say, have you seen people, not, not, to, sit, not to put it in a, in a box, but would you say that when people kind of begin to understand this teaching or have some sort of spiritual experience with it, that it is like a homecoming? I, I know it has been for me. It's like, oh, like, where have I been? I, I kind of have that... Uh, I know you don't like the term, but I, I kind of have that prodigal son experience where, what am I doing? And where, and then when you experience the father's love, it's like, Oh, where have I been? And it's, it's almost like it's, it's a lot like coming home. Absolutely. Yeah. And you know, not that I don't relate to the prodigal son uh, in the story. It's, 
it's just, I think it's a misnamed story in terms of what its real focus is. But the, the homecoming aspect of it, and I love this the way Henry Nowen talks about it, where he says, um, every time I move away from being able to hear my father say, you are my beloved child, I'm headed into a distant land. And, and that has been so true in my experience that, that it's where, where am I getting that self-definition? What is defining who I am? Is it God saying, Matt, I love you. You're defined first and foremost by the fact that you are loved. Or am I finding my definition through some other place, other voice? And the moment I move away from that voice of God saying, you're my beloved child in whom I'm well pleased, I'm quickly on my way to a distant land. And I'm probably going to find myself, you know, eating with pigs. Um, and, and, you know, wallowing in my own stuff. And so I, I love that picture of staying home and finding uh, a place. And I, I really do think it has to do with self-definition. You know, do I define myself predominantly through what I do or my achievements or my failures or my shame, or do I define myself primarily as, you know, I'm a child who's dearly loved by God. And from that place, I now go live my life. And you mentioned Henry now. And so in his book on the, the prodigal son, he talks about the need for us to mature and to become those fathers and mothers. Do you have just some practical advice for us as we wrap up here? Like what, what can we do if this, if this teaching is resonating with people? Because there's such a need for people who love in this way and the way that you described. What, what can people do? Hmm. So, you know, uh, we love systems. Um, <laughs> and, and I don't think I'm really asking for a No, system. I know that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> focus on the, focus on the sun. I mean, what do I do? I, I look at, you know, the behavior of Jesus. I, you know, it's hard for me to, to not draw from what I'm currently deal, you know, talking about and studying in my own life. And, and part of what I'm currently been doing in the last few months is, is looking at the questions that Jesus actually answered because out of all the questions he was asked, he only answered about eight directly. And it's interesting to begin to look at the, the way Jesus answers questions and how he relates to people who approach him from a legalistic performance oriented law based posture. And those who come and fall down before him and say, have mercy on me, son of David. And there's such a marked difference between the two. And, and I think it's important for us to ask, what is the core difference? Why did Jesus respond so differently to the Pharisees than he did to uh, the woman caught in adultery? Why, you know, would Jesus have told the rich young ruler to go sell everything he had and give it to the poor? Had the rich young ruler simply come and, and washed his feet like the woman did who walked into Simon's house? in Luke 7? Or would Jesus have treated him and responded to him completely differently? And, and when I look at how Jesus responds, I, I have to then say, you know, put myself into the story as a character. And, and the truth is, Rod, and you and I have had this conversation, but I am the woman at the well. I'm the woman caught in adultery. I'm the woman who walks into si- Simon's house, the known sinner. You know, I'm 
I'm Matthew, the tax collector. I'm Peter on the beach when Jesus says, do you love me? And I get frustrated and say, of course I love you. And, you know, then he admonishes me. I'm all those people in, and, and so when I think about experiencing God's love, my own posture is to come and, and fall at his feet and say, Father, forgive me, I'm a sinner. And, and so the to-do <laughs> becomes a who-to-be very quickly because uh, otherwise I start to think I'm earning something from God instead of being gifted something by God. Yeah. yeah. I, don't, I don't know that we can experience God's love in a profound way if we don't allow it to go to those places that we're really trying to hide most of the time the places yeah. where we feel the greatest amount of shame and the greatest amount of uh, that we're disappointing someone. I, I think it's at that level, you know, I, I don't want to take up too much time, but I, I, I come from a, a belief that the greatest human need is to be known and to be loved. And, but our greatest fear is that I'll be known and be rejected. And so we hide ourselves. And if, if you, you truly knew me, you would turn your back on me and reject me. And, and so we become experts at a very, very early age of saying just enough to make people feel we're being open. And, and in so doing, we continue to hide ourselves. And, you know, you and I've seen it countless times in our own lives and other people's lives that um, in, in that hiding place, we, we want to experience community. We want to experience love and what I would call intimacy but it, it's, it's a, a goalpost we never get to experience and it, because we've never really opened up ourselves. And, and when we open ourselves to God, we actually can experience that deep longing of our lives and find out, well, not only does God know us and love us, but he's always known us and loved us. You know, not a single thing has been a surprise to God. He's never wringing his hands in heaven going, um, wow, you caught me off guard this time. I don't really know how to behave towards you. Never. It's, it's always the same response. I've known you from before you were in your mother's womb. I love you. I've always loved you. And to finally let that go into those places where, you know, uh, as John says, that when we walk in the light, we experience that fellowship, that koinonia, that oneness. And, but it has to do with that vulnerable place of exposing, allowing ourselves to be known in those deep places by God, as well as by other people. Beautiful. Yeah. It's such a good point. Well, thanks so much, Matt. I, I still have some questions on my sheet, but we should probably wrap it up there (laughs) in terms of time. Yeah. What are, I, I've been encouraging my guests lately to share just one way what's one way that people can get in touch with you if uh i know you you speak on this and uh and you've done some some blogs and some other podcasts and if people i'll just say from personal experience you're you're one of my favorite teachers and if people want to get in touch with you how can they do that yeah very simply if they want to email me they just email me matt.atkins a-t-k-i-n-s at gmail.com and uh, just recently did another podcast with a, a group here in town called The Elephant Club. Uh, you can look it up and uh, talked about uh, fathering more from a parenting standpoint. 
And it was, uh, it's a group that's there to support husbands and fathers. And uh, so we talked about real practical kind of parenting. You know, I've raised five kids, they're all adults. And uh, or my wife raised them and they put up with me or something like that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, you know, I, I have a little bit of history, a little journey ahead than a lot of the young fathers. And I, it's a really intense time. So that's something else that people can take a look at. But matt.atkins at gmail is a very simple way to get in touch with me. And, and I... I'm pretty diligent at responding. So, Excellent. So if people are listening on SoundCloud or iTunes or whatever platform they happen to be listening on, we'll have multiple links to where you can find Matt, including the church that he, he works at and, uh, and, the, and the couple of things that he just mentioned there as well. So yeah, take a look for our show notes on fuelradio.com. Well, thanks again, Matt. My privilege. <laughs>